Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Well, last week we were recording after you got off a long flight. We are now recording after I just got off a long flight, so I had to match your hustle. <laughs> yeah, karma's a bitch sometimes, huh? Hey, you know what? We said we're back. We could both now say that we are committed to being back. There we go, indeed. So this week was interesting. As I mentioned in my daily update yesterday, I was actually in the States. I had a few personal things to attend to. And it worked out that Microsoft was holding an event this week for a number of journalists that I was able to sort of tie the two together. It's like this big game of Jenga. Whenever I need to go back to the States, I try to see how many things I can pack into that trip as possible. In November, I'm like, oh, I need to go back in January. And then I got an email from Microsoft. Like, oh, it's perfect. I'd love to do that. So it worked out. Went there. They had an all-day thing there. A couple of sessions with Sachi Nadella, as well as a few other Microsoft executives. And it was interesting. I put up a transcript of the talk he gave, which is a little dense probably a little hard to sort of get into, but I thought it'd be, you know, worth reading if you're into that sort of thing. And then also was still writing Star Trek, of course. And I think there's actually a surprising connection between the two things. So maybe we can get into that and see if we can tease it out. Yeah, before we do, I mean, maybe you're actually up on me on this whole travel thing because I was coming back from a holiday in Australia and you sound like you're coming back from the States having a jam-packed schedule. So credit to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But your, your flight was longer. <laughs> yeah, that's possibly true. So I wrote this week about something that's been an ongoing sort of dispute in open source world, which is the question of, you know, there's been an explosion, or explosion may be a bit strong, but there's been a lot more companies that have sort of been founded, have raised VC money, have IPO gone public on an open source model where the core product that they are creating is an open source project. And in the way they make money, you know, is they're selling something alongside with it. Now it could be you know, sort of like services. That was the old school sort of red hat idea. It could be additional tools and software around it that make the software, you know, much easier to use. And in the long run, there's a shift to selling whatever it is as a service where the software is free, but if you want it to be fully sort of everything taken care of for you, you can walk up and sign up to it as a service. And the reason why I decided to write about this week was there was an announcement that Amazon announced a new database, which was called DocumentDB, and then in parentheses said with MongoDB compatibility, which is to say it was not a MongoDB database, MongoDB being a NoSQL database that is kind of suited to large amounts of both structured and unstructured data that you kind of need to serve horizontally, like a broadly, like think for web applications that you know are serving huge amount of users and spread out sort of all over the world. And the traditional sort of MySQL databases have a harder time with those sort of workloads. Anyhow, it's been a very popular and successful product, and the company around it has offered a free version called the Community Version under a very restrictive license called the AGPL that, like the GPL on which it is based, basically, if you make any changes, you have to release all those changes to the public. But a limit of the GPL is, is when you actually download the software or offer it for download that those things are triggered. And the AGPL sort of amends that to be that if anyone actually accesses the software over the network, the idea is... Is, you know, if you were offering software as a cloud offering, you weren't technically triggering sort of the provisions of the traditional GPL, which was created in this old world where I have a copy of software and then I sell you a copy of software or give you a copy of the software and it's now been duplicated, it's been distributed. But if I'm just running the software on my server and you can come use the software, I actually haven't distributed the software to you. And so the AGPL is meant to basically trigger it if that happens as well. And, you know, the point is it's very restrictive. They actually created a new license even more restrictive. There's Lots of questions, arguments as to whether it even qualifies an open source license or if it would even hold up in court, which is basically if I 
use their software, then the entire stack that I use to sort of manage that and run it has to also be open sourced completely, you know, which obviously would be untenable for a large cloud provider as an example. Anyhow, the long and short of it is that they had this community version with this very restrictive license. And then they also had a enterprise version and the enterprise version obviously did not have any of those restrictions. They could do this because they owned all the copyright around MongoDB, which I want to get into a moment. I think there's an interesting point there as well, but then they could sell it to enterprises and then they could sell additional tools that all went around it. Like if you actually want to run it at production for a large company, you need all the interfaces to manage it, all the supporting structures, all like just there's lots of stuff that goes into running a database in a data center and they would provide all of that. And they've built a very nice business and they IPO in 2017. It was a successful IPO. The stock has nearly doubled in price since then, or evaluation or market cap, whatever it is. Uh, sorry, I just got off a plane, as I said. Anyhow, a large part of that growth is because they're also now starting to offer MongoDB as a service themselves, a product called MongoDB Atlas, where you can just walk up and sign up and then basically have a in-production database that you can use for your application. Meanwhile, though, Amazon comes along and they are now offering their own version. But because the only way for Amazon to get the software outside of paying a license, which, you know, Amazon at scale does not want to do. And because the open source version had this very sort of restrictive license on it, they basically rewrote it or they took the API and are offering their own version. And they're saying if you use, you know, before the version 3.6, it should mostly run on Amazon. There's certain caveats where it does and doesn't, which I'm sure MongoDB is happy to tell you about. But the idea is if you're a large enterprise and you've been running a MongoDB installation and you want to move to the cloud as you're moving all sorts of your other stuff to the cloud. Well, sure, you could go with MongoDB and have sort of a custom relative to the rest of your setup cloud provider to run your database, or you're moving everything else to AWS. Why not just run it on AWS as well and have everything all in one place? And this is driving a lot of angst sort of in the open source world, which is we kind of got this cool new model where open source projects could not just be sort of developed by hobbyists or people in their free time or people supported by foundations or grants or whatever it might be, but actually like getting VC money. Like, And VC makes so much sense for software because, you know, software is a lot of work up front to sort of monetize in the long run. And, oh, you can monetize it with these new models. And if Amazon's coming along and basically leveraging their massive scale and what they're selling to enterprises, which is the sort of reliability and scalability and all those things that Amazon offers, is that business model going away? Are we losing what seemed to be a workable business model for open source? And that'd be a bummer, frankly. It'd be a bummer for everyone. It'd be a bummer for Amazon if they started losing these sort of products. And that question of, is there a real problem here was sort of the point of what I want to get into. Sorry, that was a very long overview. No, it was, but it was super helpful. There are three things I think I want to pick up on in what you said. The first is like, it's so interesting how they've used the extension of the GPL, the GNU public license as almost like a version of freemium for SaaS, but when the software is pointing out as opposed to pointing in, like you think about a product like Slack where you can download it and try it amongst your team and use it. And if it's helpful and you want the archives, you decide you want to pay for it. Given it's facing out rather than in and the restrictions then around if it's accessed, you then have to open up any changes 
And there's even more restrictive license or more extreme version of this license where if you use it, you have to make sure the rest of your open source stack or the rest of your stack is opened up. Such an interesting twist on the freemium model for B2B and the distinction between you have to update the source and release it if that software is downloaded versus you have to release that source if the software is accessed just speaks to how much software has changed and how the nature in which we change and use software in this SaaS model has changed so much since the GPL was first ideated back with Richard Stallman back in the days when he was riling against Windows. Yeah, and the last version of GPL was 2007. 2007 was also the year that AWS was founded, right? And so you can see the sort of disconnect there. But, you know, it's interesting. I don't want to get too much into the politics and questions of open source. I'm sure I'd get a lot wrong. And then also I try to avoid political and holy wars in general. Uh, but, you know, I think there's lots of folks that don't necessarily think that's a problem or that the GPL is perfectly suitable for what it is. And if you're offering it as a service, that's your prerogative. Like it's one of the four freedoms of, of software, which is that you can use the software as you see fit. And that the AGPL is already sort of like a bit dodgy. And then this new sort of server-side license or whatever that MongoDB created is really infringing. It's trying to control what people can do with software, which is a violation of sort of the freedom of open source. So there's all sort of controversy here, which I actually don't want to get too much into. It's really interesting because a lot of people were tying together this recent license shift that they did away from the AGPL to their new own license that was even more restrictive and that to Amazon doing this. But Amazon, I'm sure, has been working on this for a long time. Like the AGPL was already plenty restrictive for Amazon to be motivated to figure out a way to go around it. And I think a counterexample is Redis Lab. So Redis is another database. Redis is a database that runs in memory, so it's super fast and super performant. And Redis Labs created Redis with a BSD style license, which basically is the most liberal, the most permissive sort of open source license there is, which basically says, here's the source code, do with it what you want. If you want to you know, change it up and resell it, if you want to do whatever, you're not sort of compelled to do anything. And in this case, guess what Amazon offers? AWS Redis, which is basically the exact same code because they can, right? The license allows them to do it. And in this case, Redis, now they have modules. Redis Labs is modules that that sort of work with Redis. And they've tried to do their own different sort of license, an Apache license, but with a extra clause called a commons clause that basically says you have to pay us if you run this as a service, which again is a ton of controversy because like that doesn't seem like an open source license because it's not. And so, you know, there's all these sorts of weird sort of things around licensing going on, but The long and short of it is that you sort of hinted at this in your comments that for a lot of these companies, particularly the sort of VC founded looking to make money companies, open source is a lot less about the old school sort of community driven development model than it is being a marketing tool. And by a marketing tool, I mean, not just that people like it because it's open source, but it's a freemium model. You're exactly right. It's super easy to download. It's to try. You can look under the covers. You can figure stuff out. You can send stuff around, understand how it works, try to tie it in with your stuff. And then if you want to move forward, then you're limited legally, but you can obviously get a license from MongoDB or from Redis or whatever it might be to use it in production. And I think this is an important shift. And I mentioned the thing about MongoDB having sort of full copyright control. Like they have full copyright control because they don't accept contributions to the project unless the copyright is assigned to them, right? It's very clear who owns and who is in charge of MongoDB. And was it an open source project? Yes, but it's a very different flavor of open source project than before. And I think what you mentioned about the freemium aspect of it is exactly right. 
you've framed the end of your introduction, the context setting by saying people are getting concerned about the future of open source, given the way Amazon's swooping in and undercutting that business model. And on one hand, I absolutely see that. On the other hand, what you just said then about open source being a marketing tool is something that gives me a little bit of hope. It's not necessarily marketing in terms of direct response marketing, which it feels like is more the model that MongoDB or Redis are using, but it's the type of marketing that's saying, I'm a good corporate citizen. I want to attract really good engineering talent. Like, look at us open sourcing all these projects. And with engineering talent becoming one of the biggest constraining factors on the growth of a number of these organizations, I see more and more organizations realizing that doing the right thing and by doing the right thing, contributing to open source is a way of demonstrating this is the type of organization they are. The other point is just this general commoditizing your compliments. And you see in the wars between Facebook and Google and so on and so forth, that they're going to have areas which they're very, very strong in. And there are areas where they lag in and where there are areas that they lag in. One way of playing catch up against the competition is to open source their version of that software and try and get more scale behind it, like attract developers, attract usage on that as a mechanism of limiting the level to which they fall behind. I think there's a few things going on there in what you said, which is for sure a very sustainable open source model is the companies that monetize somewhere else and then offer up portions of what they do as an open source framework. So a classic example, one of the most successful recent open source projects is Kubernetes, which is from Google. It's basically container software that's based on Google's sort of internal container model, which they've been doing for a long time. And it's become this really thriving community that is very much a community project in the best sense of the word. And its foundation is the fact that it was in Google's interest to, one, they built the software for themselves first, or at least a version of it, and they sort of recreated it as an open source version. But then also, Google has a strategic imperative to have Kubernetes widely used and out there because the promise of containers is the fact you can move easily from sort of one cloud provider to another because it's all self-contained, which in Google's world where they're a challenger to AWS's dominance, that's a very good thing. There's lots of other projects like this. Another interesting one that very much fits in your discussion of commoditizing your compliments was Facebook, and this is actually of several years ago, did the Open Compute Project, which the idea was to open source all the components that go into running a data center. And in that case, again, they were trying to catch up with large companies, you know, Google in particular, that had these huge infrastructure advantages. And basically, by trying to open source all the components from router software to management to all the sorts of things, it's a way to catch up. It's like taking modularization to the extreme, where we bring everything to bear. Twitter has several open source projects. Twitter Bootstrap, your basic website is built on this framework from Twitter. Almost all of them are. It's just like sort of something that everyone uses. Uber has one, the name of which escapes me, that is widely used. In all these cases, it's also not just a competitive thing. It's really the case that if this isn't a differentiator for a business, but it's a necessary component for a business, then getting more people working on it, more people using it, increasing the ecosystem around all these things ends up benefiting us in the long run. It's not even just a, we want to be attractive engineers. Like there's real benefits to development that come from open source and it makes perfect sense to sort of take advantage of those. Now I would set those all on one side, all the sort of corporate open source projects where the open source project is not where they make their 
money. And I think there is a special case for companies like MongoDB, like Redis Labs, where their core product on which they seek to make money is open source. You know, that's something that it was becoming increasingly viable in a world of selling to enterprise where you could make money doing that. The big question going forward is, can you still sort of balance those two things? Can you literally make money off of something that is free in a world where monetization is increasingly moving to the cloud? Yeah. And this is the challenge of Amazon, which is given the way that the usage of software is evolving inside of enterprises, the way to do it is as a service. And you make the point in your article that one of the big areas for growth for MongoDB is their Atlas product, which is offering it as a service. The challenge is they are trying to sell to the same developers that probably have a whole bunch of stuff already on Amazon. And yeah, the MongoDB version is more up to date the latest versions, there's features that are continuing to be developed, all the benefits of the SaaS model. The question is, there is a developer productivity and developer convenience, for want of a better word, almost developer laziness, depending on how important that specific component is, where they're just like, well, it's a checkbox in the Amazon screen where I can just turn this on and the billing's all there and it's already an approved vendor and I don't have to set up accounts and I just want to get this thing to work. Like, I'm just going to check it and be done with it. And it's this integration that Amazon is offering where it's this one-stop shop and everything just kind of works together that becomes very hard to compete with. So you remind me of that old saying, no one got fired for buying IBM. I think there's an aspect in the cloud where no one got fired for renting from AWS, as it were. And you know the things you mentioned about like opening purchase orders and adding a new vendor to the system, like those are real obstacles. But there's sort of a bigger picture here that I've been thinking about. And I'm still not quite sure what I think, to be frank. And you know, there's this idea about software as a service, how it's really changed IT. And where it used to be that for software, like software that people actually used, there was a big advantage towards already being in the data center, right? So if you're Microsoft and people have Exchange, well, maybe then you'll use SharePoint for your file sharing because, you know, it's sort of all integrated and built in. And yeah, maybe no one likes SharePoint, but it's easier once you're already sort of halfway down that road. And a big way that the cloud has really upset the enterprise market and really changed things is the degree to which it's so much easier to try out and incorporate new software as a service applications. So Box can come in and they don't need to do do a big systems integration and come in and install stuff on the data center and all those sorts of things. And it's created an environment where it's more viable to be a single product company because the cloud abstracts away so much of the complexity that drove IT departments towards being, you know, biased towards a single vendor. Right, exactly. And what I'm very curious about is something like MongoDB or Redis, for example, is very different than like Box or Slack, right? It's not final software that normal people for excuse the term, are sort of using, right? It's infrastructure. It's stuff that developers are using. And that's why the open source model is so effective. It's not just they like it because it's open source. It's that if you're sort of figuring out you want to use sort of a new database, you need to be able to sort of get into the guts and be able to work with the code itself. You know, so they kind of have to be open source in that regard if they're going to get traction, if they're going to get people using it. And it's almost as if, yes, it was a challenge getting into the data center before, but at the end of the day, 
yes, the data center moved very slow in sort of adding on new components, but there was sort of teams and stuff in place that were equipped to do that. Oh, right, we're going to put in a new database here in our servers or whatever it is. It's going to be MongoDB and we're going to make that investment and we think it's going to pay off, you know, and all these sorts of things. Whereas if you're going completely with the public cloud to deal with multiple providers where, yes, we have most of our stuff in AWS, but we're going to also have part of our infrastructure on MongoDB Atlas, which by the way, sits on top of AWS or Azure, you can choose, but it's a different interface. It's a different control panel. It's a different billing system. It's almost like the infrastructure portion of enterprise software is going in the opposite direction of user-facing software. Where user-facing software, it's easier than ever to have tons of products from tons of companies, whereas the bias in infrastructure software is to centralize and only pay one as opposed to like paying multiple ones. So I understand it's like a bullwhip effect where initially you started out with a very big bias towards single vendor, but the problem was most of that single vendor software sucked. And then the public cloud created this flourishing ecosystem for specialized providers to emerge. What I don't think people were expecting was those single vendors have now turned around and become such lethal competitors and so customer focused, particularly Amazon, that they're effectively replicating, not quite as well as, but to a good enough extent, a lot of these infrastructure products that this flourishing ecosystem was providing. And actually the parallel that I see here is actually similar to what happened in terms of buying stuff on the consumer web. There is something to that, but I'm almost drawing a slightly different distinction, which is that the forces governing user-facing software, like SaaS, basically software as a service, are different than the forces governing infrastructure software. If you talk about as a service, there's infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service. For simplicity, let's talk about software versus infrastructure. Infrastructure is no end user is facing it. It's like you buy compute, you buy storage, you buy database, and you build software on top of that. So all these SaaS companies are built on top of infrastructure and a lot of them are infrastructure as a service companies and in a value chain, right? We've talked about how things shift and integrations shift and like you squeeze one part of the balloon and there goes the other part of the balloon. And it kind of feels like in the old world, the backend server world where sort of every company had its own backend, the squeeze was at the user level where the employees in a company, most of what they use was from Microsoft, for example, or they're running web apps and all the line of business apps were built using Microsoft APIs and Microsoft just dominated that user layer. And then in the back room, there was more sort of diversity. You might have an Oracle database, you might have an SAP ERP system, you might have Microsoft Exchange. You actually bought arguably from more vendors in the back end, whereas the people actually using the software mostly just lived in a Microsoft world up and down. Now it's almost going in the opposite direction where because infrastructure has gone from lots of different providers and you have to sort of put it all together yourself to a world where you can put everything on AWS or you can put everything thing on Azure or whatever it might be, that's where the squeeze is happening now, which has led to a flowering of software as a service applications where your typical enterprise company has contracts like over a hundred different SaaS companies or some crazy number like that. And I feel like there's been this flip and that's where the challenge comes for a company like MongoDB because they're not in that flowering layer. They're down on the infrastructure layer and life was easier when they were in the data center because there is used to handling the different pieces and it's more difficult now in a world where sort of centralization rules everything. 
This makes a lot of sense to me. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And it's actually come up at work in conversations with my CEO. So we talked about me having a new job. We haven't mentioned the fact that it's actually kind of in this space working at Cloudflare. The layers that I think I would describe to try and put a little bit more precision around what you're saying, you think about three layers, edge, application and store and compute. And you think in the old world, the companies that were at the edge, there were a lot of them. There was a lot of competition. It was Citrix, Cisco, F5, Riverbed, et cetera, et cetera. There were a bunch of them. But at the application layer in the old world, it was actually very restricted. And you mentioned Microsoft. They're a great example. I'd say there were only a couple of other players that really mattered, SAP and Oracle. And they mostly manifested themselves on Windows systems anyway. Exactly. And then the layer down from that, which is the store and compute layer, again, there were a ton of these players, HP, Dell, EMC, Sun, IBM, Lenovo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the shift that happened in the value chain, like you said, the balloon got squeezed and it kind of inverted from having like two triangles, one perched on top of each other with lots of competition at the top and the bottom of that stack and little in the middle to the other way round, where it was almost like two pyramids with the bases together. Because at the edge, there are only a handful of players. Think about Akamai, Cloudflare, and AWS does it as well. Then you think about at the application layer, there has been this explosion, Salesforce, Workday, NetSuite, Box, all those other ones, the hundred typical B2B SaaS providers that you mentioned. Like it's pretty stunning how many there are, right? Especially compared to how few there were in the past. And then you come back to the store and compute and you've gone from a world where it was so many players to just a few. It's like AWS, Google, Microsoft, and in China, Alibaba. I mentioned how many applications there are, but what you just said, yeah, there's only a few. I think that's related, right? There's an aspect where there's so much centralization in a couple of these areas that allows for that much more of a flourishing sort of in one place. And whereas you talk about the pyramids and the triangles, those triangles used to be skinnier back in the day, right? Now they're kind of like really fat and they go down to really sharp points. And that's exactly it. This is one where the podcast before I wrote the article has been really helpful because this is the piece I was trying to get at in that article, which is the challenge for MongoDB. And to be clear, MongoDB itself is doing quite well. Like the Atlas product is growing. It's growing very rapidly. I wrote more about it in a daily update this week. It's more a question of what about the companies that come after MongoDB? Is it going to be something that VCs want to invest in infrastructure, for example, when the obvious way to monetize the infrastructure is to run it as a service? But when you're running it as a service, you're really swimming against, you know, some serious current, you know, flying against some big headwinds. I mean, how many sort of uh, terrible analogies can I come up with? But you get the idea. I think it's going to be pretty challenging. I think MongoDB to the extent their service is successful, it was successful in large part because they were able to build their company first in that old world, where in the data center, there was a lot more opportunity to have lots of different products in there. And in this new world, it's going to be harder and harder for the next open source company to sort of get the level of traction necessary without sort of giving away the family jewels, as it were, to the cloud providers. Yeah. And also, if you're a VC and you start to see this happening and you start to see that this company is having to rely on the cloud providers to provide the service, it means that the economics of something like MongoDB providing the software as a service is dictated by the economics of the infrastructure providers sitting underneath. And the infrastructure providers are obviously going to have better economics for themselves than they are for their customers. And so it's going to become harder and 
and harder for these guys to compete if they try and offer a service further up the stack. Right, that's exactly right. And, and so MongoDB's bet is that their software is going to be that much better because, you know, Amazon's fundamentally limited. It's a compatibility sort of thing. It's built on something else. And so maybe just MongoDB on MongoDB Alice is going to be that much better and they will succeed in that way. But the other challenge, though, is if you want to build that from scratch where you're going to have something better and different, are you going to ever get the traction necessary that you need to? Whereas Redis has the opposite problem. Like Amazon is running an up-to-date version of Redis because it's completely open source with BSD license, but that means their monetization challenges are even more extreme. But that's a way to get lots of tractions. We get lots of people using your sort of product. And there's this real tension between taking advantage of the sort of, again, people in open source will be mad at us, but I think you're right, the sort of freemium advantages, the marketing advantages of open source of getting lots of people to try your product and use it when that comes with a real fundamental trade-off in your long-term sort of monetization. And again, that's always been the case with open source. But I think the world of selling to enterprises, there was a lot more room to sort of pull off these models. And I'm a little more or maybe a lot more dubious about that in the long run in sort of the cloud world. It's really hard to argue with that. And what's more is once you start injecting doubt into whether did they only manage to get to where they are because they got in before the barn door closed, you don't want to be the VC throwing money at that. Once that doubt starts emerging, the money starts drying up and then it becomes even harder for these companies to get off the ground. Right. And so we'll see what happens. I just think the world of where you're investing in MongoDB a decade ago versus the world where there's a new company today, it just feels like it's a lot different of a world. And that doesn't mean open source is going anywhere. Like open source is here to stay. Like the economic imperative drives towards open source because software is free. It's infinitely reproducible, right? And there's always going to be that aspect to it. And there's always going to be people that care. There's always going to be the sort of the community aspects of open source. There's always going to be corporate open source, which is the commoditizing the compliments aspect. And again, it's not just a driving down prices. There's real benefits to developing with an open source model. And so it's not going anywhere. What this article is about specifically was this VC driven world of open source companies where the product is open source. And I feel like that that's a world that might have peaked. We'll see. We'll see. And, you know, it's a bit of a shame if it's the case, because were these the most sort of like the best possible examples of open source where community involvement, all sorts of no, like we've kind of dogged them a little bit for being more of sort of a marketing tool. But at the same time, the world of software development is a better place because MongoDB was built, because Redis was built, because these other products were built. And Companies like Amazon and services like AWS are better services because these were built. And it'd be a bit of a shame if I am right and that sort of model has sort of peaked in relevance and effectiveness because that means we're losing a really important tool to developing cool new technologies. It's hard to argue with that. It does feel like something is getting lost if these types of companies don't exist anymore. Yeah, I'm bummed I didn't have a drawing of like our inverted pyramid or something like that. <laughs> we'll have to go back and add it to the article. But um, I mentioned at the beginning, I think there is a connection to Microsoft here. And one is obvious that Microsoft has Azure, which is an AWS competitor, driving many of the same sort of dynamics. And oh, interestingly enough, Microsoft already did the same thing. They offered a, uh, I think, Cosmos DB, which has a MicroDB compatibility, but no one seemed to care because they weren't like the big bad monster. <laughs> they were the distant second place. Although interestingly, Microsoft is arguably more of a threat because Microsoft is 
more likely to be, I think, the partner of companies that are shifting from on-premise to the cloud. Like that's sort of Microsoft's bread and butter, which means that, you know, the companies that use MongoDB in their database and they just want to kind of move everything to the cloud, Microsoft might actually be the bigger problem there. Again, though, they've offered for a while and MongoDB has been doing well. So maybe maybe all this is much ado about nothing, at least in the case of MongoDB. But the other thing about Microsoft and getting to some of the comments I talked about Satya Nadella, and this week Microsoft announced this big deal with Walgreens, for example, they're going to do all their cloud computing and also sort of a deal in the stores and Office 365 and all those sorts of things with all the employees. It's not the first deal Microsoft has done with a big retail player. Walgreens is obviously interesting in that it's a retailer. It's competitive with Amazon in that regard. Amazon bought Pillbox, which is sort of a pharmaceutical play last year, which is obviously very competitive with Walgreens. And Microsoft has mentioned more and more sort of on earnings calls and in the context of this week, and Adele kind of brought it up again, that they are a platform. They can be trusted. They succeed when their customers succeed and been very clear about that. And I'm very curious in this context where Amazon AWS is quite clearly a platform. Like it is sort of the, as classic a definition of a platform as you can get. No end user, you and I, we're not using AWS. We are using lots and lots of software that runs on AWS, but we're not using it, right? So everyone's sort of benefiting along the way. And I don't know, it's just interesting. It's not to say AWS isn't a platform at all, but we already see cases like with retailers, for example, where AWS is a bit compromised by the fact that Amazon also runs a very large software platform, which is its retail store, right? And it's going to be interesting to see to what extent Microsoft can really play this out in an advantageous way where by virtue of stepping back, they can do more in some respects. Mm, It's definitely true. I must confess, like, I know you were there, so you probably had the benefit of hearing Nadella say it. But as I read the transcript, I found it a little bit dense. But there were a couple of hints of one thing in particular that kind of stood out to me, and it connects back to our previous conversation. You could kind of see the early hints of the next version of that shift starting to happen again. And there were two things he said that I found interesting. One is he's starting to push this integrated application layer again. It's like we provide all this software at the application level and it's integrated and it's a much better experience as a result of that. And I found that super interesting because like we said, if you think about the way that the pyramid is drawn right now, there are all these software providers and companies have hundreds of B2B software providers and you're starting to see Microsoft go back and offering an integrated offering that's actually starting to appeal. And that's like, oh... This happened to me. I mentioned in a daily update a few weeks ago for Stratechery, which is, you know, two people, basically. I mean, mostly me, and then I have someone that works with me on the administrative stuff. I find teams to be very compelling. And what's interesting about it is I find teams, as far as chat goes, to be terrible. <laughs> like, I don't enjoy using it to chat. But it turns out I didn't actually need a chat client per se. What I needed was... I know where to find everything, which is where I go there and I know where to find the files. And I can find the associated sort of like to-do lists. I can find, yes, conversation around whatever's going on in that case, whether it be accounting or taxes or legal things, whatever it might be. And Teams actually does that pretty well. It has channels like you think about Slack, but in a channel, for example, there's a files tab, which is the list of all the files that are associated with that particular channel. And that files tab is actually SharePoint. Like, I can't believe it that I'm actually using SharePoint. It was like, 
like, <laughs> like who would have thought? But it's like it's SharePoint as it was supposed to be, where it's one place. It's like a hub. And uh, the way Nadella put it in his talk was creating an operating system for the cloud. And I think that's the exact way to think about it. Where is it a classic operating system? No, but it's one central place where you can get at all the different pieces. And in this case, it does integrate with other cloud services. They can add a tab into that sort of channel. But it's also the case where if you use all Microsoft stuff, it actually works better. It makes it sort of easier to use. So sorry, that was sort of a brief aside, but I think gets at what you were talking about. It does. And that's at the application level. The other hint that he gave at it was actually up the stack at the edge level and starting to talk about how the edge is going to become so important for businesses. And you think about how we've had these waves of paradigms and how they're tied together at the demand and supply level in terms of like you had the desktop computer associated with the mainframe. And then you start to see the shift towards cloud computing and mobile and all the data that's been unlocked, how it gets served and how it gets consumed, these paradigms go hand in hand. And starting to think about the next wave of that, all these IoT devices that are going to be coming online, like you think about self-driving cars or putting more intelligence down into factories and stuff like that. And the amount of data that will just be generated is going to be too much to be uploaded and then re-downloaded to the cloud and processed in the cloud. And oftentimes it might be too slow. I think another example he gave is like predictive maintenance. Like you want to know something's going wrong before it actually goes wrong so you can send someone out to fix it. And that requires sensors everywhere. And that's a tremendous amount of data. And you think about how that could be the thing that starts to result in this next shift of the value chain inverting one more time because you start to see so much data and it's not going to displace the cloud in the same way that the cloud didn't displace on prem like these things i still think the cloud has a long way to grow but you can just start to see the hints of what this next inversion might start to look like i'm not sure it's inversion though you mentioned all those pieces together and it's almost like a push into the extremes on both sides and going to the extreme in one area drives you into the opposite extreme in another area and so think about the ones you went through if you had sort of the pc and the mainframe or say the pc and the back end server they were different one was people sat in front of them and they used their pc and one was in the back office but they were still very closely connected oftentimes physically right but also you know you ran a line of business application ran the back end server and manifested itself on the pc and you did work there and they were different and separate, but they were relatively close. And then you move to the next stage, which is sort of mobile. And what's the counterforce or the counter piece of mobile? I would say it is SaaS applications, those applications that run on the cloud. And because they run the cloud, they work naturally both on your PC that's on the company internet. They also work on your PC when you're traveling. They work on your phone when you're out and about. And those two things go together, where as you sort of expand the physical limitations, or in some respects, we're going to mobile, the software actually went in the other direction where it also sort of expanded its purview, if that makes sense. And now you talk about going to Internet of Things, you're talking about millions of more devices, to your point, generating tons and tons and tons more of data. And like the pervasiveness of the computing that's necessary to associate that is very overwhelming. You can't have a ton of Internet of Things devices and the back end connection is like your back office server, right? It's no. a total mismatch. Right. And I think the inversion that you're getting to, so there's a general meta movement where the more sort of the stuff that's generating the data or generating the usage, the more it sort of becomes multiple and the amount of data generated leads to an increase sort of centralization and capacity on sort of the back end. And I think the point Microsoft's bet is we want to not just compete 
in the cloud by having huge amounts of scale. And yet Amazon, you know, was definitely dominant in the era of mobile. Like AWS is one of the big winners of mobile, if you think about it, right? Because it's the counterpart to that. Microsoft's like, well, no, we're going to go to the next one, which is we're going to own this area. And that's why we're investing a ton in the edge. Like Microsoft makes these little, one of their big announcements last year was these micro processors that are basically specially designed to work with Azure and they're produced at like pennies to put in all kinds of devices. And that makes a ton of sense where the more data you can drive and you're building the backend server sort of harvest and use that data in a sort of considered sort of way. Yeah, it is a clear sort of path to sort of the next step in a way that would make them that much more competitive or even potentially more competitive relative to something like AWS, which is in that middle layer. Right. And that's one of the recurring themes that's come up on this podcast, which is if you see companies dominate in one paradigm, they become so invested in that paradigm that it makes them hard to see the next one with fresh eyes. They can only view that next paradigm through the existing one. And Microsoft is the classic example, like the extent to which they miss mobile. They knew mobile was coming, but they couldn't bring themselves to think about a mobile device that wasn't just, we're going to replicate windows everything from the user experience to the business model and even though they were out in front for an extended period of time they missed the explosion because they were so wedded to the previous paradigm well sorry this is super interesting i apologize i'm very excited about this the manifestation of microsoft missing mobile was microsoft being late to the cloud right? If you understood mobile, you would have understood the cloud. But the reason why they were able to sort of catch up and they're sort of a clear number two and have a strong and growing business in the cloud is because of the centralized nature of the cloud. That's a place they could just bring their pocketbook to bear. You know what I mean? Whereas when you're on the other side, when it's highly distributed, you're counting on consumers making choices in the market to buy phones. They were never going to catch up. You can't catch up in that market being a leader with the more centralized it is, the more you can sort of just by brute force come back, which is basically what they did. They also were advantaged by the fact that many of their existing customers were as slow as they were. And now those customers are coming around to see, oh, we need to go there. And Microsoft, they were late, but they didn't abandon it. And now their strategy is just what you said earlier on. They are the ones that help these on-prem companies transition up to the cloud. Yeah. And if you think about Microsoft big picture over time, I think this paradigm is very, very interesting where you had the PC back room sort of world, which they dominated and they dominated particularly on sort of the PC side of it. And then they sort of backward integrated into the server in the back room and it took that over more and more. Then the next wave came along, which was mobile and cloud, not just infrastructure in the cloud, but infrastructure that supported software applications in the cloud. And they missed it because they were in that middle model. And so they never could catch up in mobile, but they were able to at least become competitive on the cloud side of that. And what is their goal now? What they're pushing towards is the assumption of this next model of above that, where there's just a plethora, an uncountable number of devices out there, far more than mobile, generating all kinds of data, and then having the whole backend infrastructure to deal with that and handle it. And again, trying to get to where they can own both sides of that, as opposed to sort of even better position closer to their sort of original position than the one they're in currently. Right. The Microsoft story is interesting. The one that's going to be fascinating to watch in how this all plays out is Amazon too, because just like Microsoft with mobile back in the day and cloud, it's not not that they were unaware of mobile being a thing. They just couldn't see it properly. It's going to be interesting to see if Amazon ends up in that same category or whether they can do something that's almost been unheralded, which is like win in successive paradigms. 
Well, the big advantage they're going for them is scale, like scale sort of rules all, right? Microsoft bought its way into scale and Amazon will have huge scale to cloud computing becoming even more of what it is. The other thing though that might be a problem is Amazon is all about sort of modular pieces and wounding on scale. Will they think about having that sort of modular approach or sort of integrated approach where you're integrating the edge and integrating sort of the backend cloud services? And is that going to be a real differentiator? I think those are two sort of open questions. Uh, let's be clear. I think Amazon's going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, the scale advantage is hard to overcome. But just to jump back to our podcast this week, sorry, I was kind of closing down there. But that's the challenge facing Alexa going forward is we talked about one of the big advantages Google has in this space is the level of integrations they can bring to bear on this market in a way where Alexa, by virtue of being sort of a standalone thing, and yes, they've tried to modulize and commoditize the complements as much as they can, but that only goes so far. And it's, I think, the same point that you're driving at here. Yeah, there's no doubt Amazon has scale. If you want to put a company's logo next to the word scale in the dictionary, it would definitely be Amazon. But it's a type of scale. It is large centralized cloud computing facilities. Like this is the paradigm that they have become the lethal competitor. And this is the problem. It's like, yes, scale is important, but it's also scale that's appropriate. And as that becomes more and more distributed, because this isn't about sucking all the data into a few places and processing it, it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be pushing it out as close for performance and transmission and all those reasons. Like, are they going to be able to translate one type of scale to a different type of scale? And it'll be interesting to watch. It will. Well, this is not pretty interesting. We might have been a, put a little bit of a Sachin Adela here where we were very dense and uh, might have been a little hard to track, but I thought it was super interesting. So hopefully our listeners will feel the same way. If we didn't lose them at MongoDB, because like if I wasn't really into tech and someone <laughs> started talking about MongoDB, I'd probably tune out at that point. Yeah, it's a challenge right with the stuff. I was writing that article. It took me a long time to sort of get it out, just in part because there was something on the tip of my brain that I wanted to get at and we sort of got at it in this podcast, which is that inversion between sort of where the competition is happening in the enterprise sort of stack. Yeah, totally. Alas, alas. No, no, that's, no. Why, that's why X1 is back. Yeah, I know. This is a joy of having the conversation, right? Very good. Very good. Well, uh, I'm glad we got this done. You know, we hustled because after all, Exponent is back and uh, I will talk to you next week. Yeah, welcome back home. I'll speak to you then. All right, bye-bye. Cheers.